morning. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 9. So you can begin to turn there. Um, felt good about ending our hero series. Some of you guys might be disappointed you didn't get to wear your hero shirt this week. But we ended our hero series last week. And um, this, this morning I'm going to preach a little bit about Advent because this is the last Sunday of what's known as Advent in the Christian calendar. And um, you might be kind of saying, if, if you're not real familiar with church, like, what is Advent? Never heard of this thing called Advent. Well, Advent is a period of time that's, that's kind of leading up to Christmas. And, 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 and it's leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ on, on what we celebrate on Christmas Day. And what Advent is, what it, the, the importance is for, for, for believers, for people looking at Christmas to begin to prepare their hearts to prepare to get ready for, for kind of the excitement of what Christmas is really about, about the excitement of uh, Jesus coming to this earth. Now, the, the general movement of, of Christmas, I know a lot of you guys are probably right in the midst of this, but the general movement of Christmas is usually fast-paced, right? How many of you guys have bought all your presents yet? Am I making anybody's palms sweat yet? Like, ah, oh, I got to get that done. Um, you guys got all the cookies baked all the cookies ready to go. Um, if you're taking a trip, do you got the tickets bought or, you know, the place that you're going to stay? Is that all lined out? Um, I hope I'm not creating any stress for anybody. But, but the point of these things is, is, is we're realizing that, that Christmas is very fast-paced. You just got to go to Costco maybe this afternoon, and you'll see just how fast-paced and crazy Christmas is. So when we, when we start to think about Advent, what Advent encourages us is to go the opposite direction. In this crazy, fast-paced, hectic, crammed supermarket time of year, Advent tells us to slow down and reflect on this time of year. A lot of churches actually take a whole month to preach Advent services, uh, sermons, getting us ready, getting your heart ready for what, what, what Christmas is all about. So we'll take, we'll take a day, we'll take today, and I'll, I'll preach about Advent a little bit, but we're going to look back into the Old Testament, we're going to go old school, and look at what Isaiah says about the coming of Jesus. So Advent takes us from this busy, hectic, crazy season, and it calls us to slow down, to anticipate the gravity of Christmas, to anticipate the, the, the gravity of Jesus coming. And when we begin to slow down, we begin to understand better some of the things that we generally talk about when it comes to Christmas. One of the greatest things I think about, about Christmas is the hope that it brings. You know, there's a lot of buzzwords we kind of throw in. We, we throw around joy. We throw around this idea of hope. We throw around the idea of peace. But, but this morning, we're going to focus on this idea of hope. You know, and I think sometimes these words kind of get thrown around a little bit, and I think we miss the heart of what they're about. And Advent is what calls us to really reflect on some of these things. But if we're honest, if we think about this idea of hope, you know, I, I hope to get a new rangefinder this year. You guys got a lot of hopes on a Christmas list somewhere? Are you guys Christmas list people? Well, I try to make it easy on people getting me gifts, so I make a pretty detailed list. Like, I research them and make, a, you know, I put links I send it to my family, but I'm hoping for a rangefinder. When I was a little kid, about 10 years old, I hoped for a, a, a matchbox racetrack. It was called Criss Cross Crash. It, it had batteries, and it was, uh, 
you know, as motorized so that you, that you could put the, tr- the, the cars in them and they would smash together. I don't know if anybody remembers crisscross crash, but <clears throat> we hope for all kinds of things. But I think sometimes, even though those aren't, those aren't bad hope, we, f- we forget the real meaning of hope, the real kind of hope that, that we're really longing for. I think we're looking for a much deeper understanding of this word hope. And when we begin to think about Hope, we don't have to look very far to begin to realize why we need hope. You know, if, if you pull up the news, anybody up, like to read the news and like on a morning, uh, early morning basis or, or, or weekly basis, man, it's depressing sometimes when you pull up the news. You pull up your favorite news website or you grab the paper or you listen on, on they have this tendency to report on things that are just seem horrible. It doesn't seem like there's anything good in the news anymore. But even, even in the news, sometimes that seems like it's distance. Like, okay, that happened in Illinois, or that happened in New York, or that happened somewhere else. But even in the midst of looking at the news that happened somewhere else, we're reminded that, that, that there's a need for hope right here in Helena. You know, our world seems to be getting worse. Things, I mean, we just had, we just had Grayson, and it is, seems like a scary place to raise a kid these days. The things that are happening, you know, you think, oh, it only happens in the big cities. It's happening in small cities as well. But we know that even hopelessness envelops Helena right out our door with, with broken families and suicides and, and, and even poverty right here in Helena. So we can't escape it. We're looking for hope. And this time of year, this, this Advent, it reminds us that even though this hopelessness hits home, that even though it's right here in Helena, one of the greatest things about Christmas is the hope that we're encouraged in. That's why we love Chris, Christmas. That's why we love gift giving and sharing cookies and having warm drinks together is because it, it reminds us of the encouragement that we find in that hope that we're seeking. When all the world seems so nasty and so horrible, when we pull out the news and we're like, man, I can't believe these things are going on, we love cookies because cookies encourages us a little bit. We love warm drinks. We love giving gifts because it reminds us, it's a glimmer of the possibility that there's still good in the world, that there's still good things out there. It gives us that glimmer of hope. So this morning, as we begin to think about hope and, we, and we're thinking through this, these things, and, 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 and my encouragement is that we would, we would slow ourselves down, that we would slow down and begin to think about the true meaning of Christmas. I know we talk about, that's, that's another cliche word, the, the true meaning of Christmas, but I want us to think about the hope, the, the real and true lasting hope that only Jesus can bring. And when we talk about Christmas, when we get back to the heart of the whole thing, when we're just throwing these words around and we want a deeper understanding of them, we've got to go right back to the source. And what Christmas is about is that Jesus is the source of hope in this season. So this morning we're going to be in Isaiah 9. So turn, turn to Isaiah 9 with me this morning. Isaiah 9, we're going to be in verses 6 through 7. But just a, a, a quick background on this book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. Yeah, one of those guys that kind of like could tell the future, was by God's power, could know what was going to happen. He was one of those dudes. Um, the book of Isaiah was written about seven to 800 years before Christ was born. 
So it, it predated Christ by this seven or eight hundred year span. Isaiah kind of foretold a, a, a lot of things. He, he, that, that, that was kind of his, his daytime job was like foretelling things. But, but one of the most important things that he foretold was the coming of Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. But, but, but prophets did many things. They, they not only warned the people kind of about their problems and began to show people like, okay, this is what you're struggling with. Um, but, but they also looked into the future. And, and looking at Isaiah 9 this morning, we're going to see that Isaiah pronounced one of the greatest hope-filled prophecies in all of Scripture. So this guy, eight, 800 years before Christ, begins to, 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 to prophesy about the hope that is on the horizon, the hope that is to come. So let's read a little bit this morning. Let's read Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, if you would follow along with me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and, and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So as we begin to look at this passage a little bit this morning, we find the first reason that we can have hope this season. And if you're taking notes, on the back of your program is a, is a spot to kind of write down some notes. But if you're taking notes, here's the first thing I want us to take away from this passage this morning. We have hope from this prophecy. We have hope in who Jesus is because of God's presence. We can have hope in this season because of God's presence. You know, Isaiah begins this passage fairly simply, yet in a very profound way. He, beca- he begins very simply. Look back at the beginning of verse 6. For, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He's saying, this, this baby's going to be born. This child is going to be born. And this child will be God's son. The rest of verse 6 expounds a little bit more on, on exactly who this guy would be. Look at some of the, the descriptors here. Um, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. You see, Isaiah here is explaining who this child would be. This child that was Jesus, the, the fact that he would be born. You see, the, the fact that he was born is the first important thing out of this, this whole prophecy. Simple yet profound. Scripture points to, to just how important this is. I love how 1 John 4, 9 puts it. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The fact that, that, that God became man in the form of Jesus, that God, God was man in Jesus, has, has two profound points that make it so compelling. First of all, that God became man. This is crazy. You ever think about that? That God became man. That God became man in Jesus. This is one of the things that, that makes Christianity so compelling. 
This is one of the things that, that Christian, makes Christianity so awesome. That not only is he God and he's super righteous, that, that in a sense he, he does call us to judgment because he's, he's perfect and he seeks uh, you know, uh, justice for, for all the wrongdoings, but not only is he perfect, he sent his son to justify us. So not only is he the just one, but he, in the form of his son as a man, sent a justifier. That's awesome. Because when we look at it, we usually think of a God as like holy. We can't live up to his standard. We can't figure it out. We don't know, like, what am I going to do with myself? You're like, man, Caleb, if I was honest with you, you don't want to know what I'm like Monday through Saturday. But what's so cool about this, the fact that Jesus became man is that not only is God just and he calls us to justice for the wrong things we do, but he, he, he sent Jesus to justify us. When we can't do it, Jesus does it. And he had to become a man to do that. But that's profound. That's powerful. He doesn't just leave us to our own devices. He sent a way out through Jesus. And Jesus had to become a man to do that. But I like the second reason this is so profound. Jesus was and is with us. Man, that's awesome. Just think about that for a minute. Jesus was and is with us. Just look at Matthew one twenty three. another part of the Christmas story. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's what's so cool about this. God became a man in the form of Jesus. God became a man, and, and he relates to us. He knows what it's like to be a man. You know, we had, we had Grayson on tax day, April 15th. And if you haven't had a kid yet, hopefully you will someday, but, but the experience of having a baby, there's nothing like it. But I, but I, but I think of that, that, that actual moment when, when he was entering into the world, and I don't have to go into the details, but it's, it's kind of raw and real. It's not, a, not necessarily just a pretty picture. It's not like you know, rainbows and smells like roses. It's not, it's not a pretty thing. But Jesus entered into the world just like any one of us did, just like my son Grayson did. And it's, it's so profound because just thinking of the rawness, the realness that Jesus entered in the world just like any one of us did, that it wasn't just rainbows and sunshine and, you know, the other thing is he didn't just poof appear. He was born like any other real human. I highlight this to make the point that Jesus was real, just like us. That he entered this world just like us. That it wasn't pretty. That, that when he was growing up, he probably wiped out on the pavement. Well, maybe they didn't have pavement, but he, he wiped out and he skinned his knee. You know, when he was the carpenter building stuff with his hands, he probably dropped a heavy tool on his, on his thumb. You know, he, he felt the bumps and bruises. He relates to us, and, 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 and he was... A real, live person. At the same time, he didn't separate himself from the pains of the world. This is what I love about Jesus. He was real, and we know he was perfect, and he didn't struggle with the things that, that we struggle with as far as sin. But at the same time, the things that distress us, when we, when we open the news, when we, when we look at our world, the things that, that bring us pain brought him pain. Probably even more so. He's thinking, these are, these are my children. These are the people I came to save. And this 
hunger and homelessness and suicide, it's more painful for me than it is even for them. So not only did he relate to us as being a real human, but the things that, that, that depressed us depressed him even more. He relates to us. In fact, not only the things that, that bug us that sometimes we're even a little bit afraid to approach, the things we're afraid to, to try to tackle because they're so huge sometimes, he went, he went straight after them. We read throughout the Gospels that, that he approached an adulterous woman to love her and, and change her life. You know, he, he approached the working class guys. He liked a bunch of uh, fishermen. That's who he brought around him. And he, and he approached the sick and injured, the ones with leprosy. He went right after the most hurtful things that seemed to, to bring us the, the most sadness. He related to us because everything that breaks our heart breaks his heart. And he did it all without sinning. But he came and he became a man and he died a real death on the cross because he knew that that would be the solution. When he's not only the God, the just God that's righteous, but also the justifier, he knew that he could put the picture back together by dying on the cross for us. So not only did he relate, but he helped pay the, the penalty that we needed to pay. And to me, this morning, there's hope in that. That's one of the things we celebrate, that God became man. There is hope in that because he relates, because he's, he's the way that we, 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 we get out of our sin. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to be with us. Our struggles are not alone. Here, here's how we push it in a little bit. When, when you feel like you're alone and you, and you feel like you're the only one concerned about it or you feel like I can't overcome this, we're not alone. Our struggles are not by ourselves. We just have to trust Jesus and him alone to, 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 to press in and to begin to change our lives. The things that break our heart break his. So we know that he is one of us and he is with us. So moving on, we see kind of where Isaiah moves from this. And we can find our second takeaway this morning. While, while Jesus became a man, he also fulfills all of our hopes. And that's our second point. Not only does, is there hope in the fact that, that his presence is real and he's with us, but he also fulfills uh, all of our hopes. The things that we desire from a God and from, from a friend, from who we, who we need in a person like Jesus. And when I think about Jesus fulfilling our, our desires or the things that we're looking for, I, I can't help but think of superlatives. You guys remember superlatives from high school? Did anybody get voted with a superlative? I think the superlative they gave me was most ambitious. I didn't really know what that meant. Maybe they thought I was going to amount to a lot. Um, little did they know I was going to be a church planter. But, but you remember superlatives from high school. Best looking, best smile, best hair, most athletic, funniest. You know, those are the, the superlative. The superlative is like kind of the best of fill in the blank, whatever. And there's all kinds of superlatives. They're, you know, usually in your, they, they record them in the yearbook, and, and it kind of is a reminder of your time in high school. Isaiah continues this passage giving the superlatives of Jesus, of how awesome, how, how he was going to be the best of whatever he was going to be. Look at verse 6 again with me, kind of in the second half of that verse. 
And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Just look at the words that, that Isaiah uses here. In the, in the idea of Wonderful Counselor, Jesus would fill us with wonder in his wisdom. Look at Mighty God. In him, in, in Jesus, there is strength and power. Everlasting Father, there is no end to his reign. There was so much more than just a blip on the radar. And then Prince of Peace, his rule is marked by an unprecedented peace. I think if you asked any group throughout history, whether they, they do it by pacifism or with the sword, every group of people throughout history have sought peace in one way or the other. Sometimes it was imperfect peace, but Christ ushers in a perfect peace through his reign. So, so maybe to push this a little bit more, because we can just kind of look at the words and be like, how does, that, how does that apply to me? To push this in a little bit further, for, for us to make a little more sense of it, Jesus embodies everything that we want, because we want those things. We want wisdom. We need strength and power. We want things to, to last. But Jesus has these things. That's what Isaiah is telling us. Jesus has these things. Do you want wisdom? Jesus has that. He wonders us with how much wisdom that we can find in him. Are you seeking strength over something in your life? Jesus has the power to overcome those things that you want strength with. Are you, are you scared about the future? Are you scared about life after death? Jesus is everlasting. Is life unrestful for you? Is it stressful? Okay, I know it's Christmas and it might be stressful right now. I know it's unrestful at times right now. But Jesus ushers in peace. Because Jesus is all we've ever needed, he's all that we should ever want. So Isaiah is saying he's got these superlatives. He's, he's, he's all these things and more. He's, he's all that we should want. Let me be even more practical with this. The gospel calls us to make Jesus the Lord of our lives. Because he is the most awesome thing, he's, he's all these superlatives, all these things that we want to be, all these things we're seeking, all these things we want. The gospel, the story of scripture, wants us to make Jesus the Lord of our lives. How do we do this? We desire Jesus above everything else. We desire Jesus above everything else. That doesn't say we just throw everything else out. In fact, when we desire Jesus above everything else, it makes everything else awesome. Because it puts it in the right perspective. So, so, so here's a few examples. Say you want to make wise business decisions. Say you're like, I'm, I'm trying to make wise business decisions. We can either, you can either kind of stumble around and try to figure it out, and, and it might end well. It might, it might go all right. And you, might, you might do well for yourself. We have all kinds of people that, that make their own decisions. But on the other hand, you can say, Christ is the Lord of my life. Whatever I need to do honors him. And when you begin to make business decisions, you, you conduct business with honesty and with excellence and bringing glory to God. You care about your workers and you love those who you come encounter in, in, in contact with. You see, sometimes when we, when we do it by ourselves, we might try to cut corners or do it dishonestly or, or sometimes the really bad side of us comes out and we, and we treat our coworkers poorly. But when Christ is the forefront of that, he begins to shape our hearts so that we 
that we conduct business in a way that glorifies him. Or, or take peace, for example, in these superlatives. Take, take peace. I think all of us want peace. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, man, I do not get along with my neighbor. Like, Caleb, if you were around on Wednesday, you would have seen me cuss out my neighbor. <laughs> I hope none of you did that. Don't, don't tell me if you did. But, but you're like, man, I, I cussed out my neighbor the other day. You can either approach your neighbor and, and, and kind of the disdain that you have for him like the rest of the world. You can either set up a fence and, and, and set up the barrier and, and, and keep the animosity there. Or you can put Christ the Lord of everything. And you can say, I want to love my neighbor like Christ loves him, like Christ commands me to. And you, and you can begin to seek a peaceful resolution in that relationship. So here, here's the point. Those are just a couple examples. But, but, but Jesus isn't just a good example. That he is. He is a good example for us. We should look at Jesus and be like, I want my life to be like that. But he's not just a good example in all these superlatives. You see, his gospel, because he's all these things, and through his gospel, he begins to work in our hearts. And he begins to change us so that we become more like him. He begins to work in our hearts, and he begins to change our lives so that we better reflect some of these superlatives. Our lives begin to be shaped by these superlatives and, and so much more that Isaiah is talking about when we allow Christ to work his way into our hearts. So not only is he an example, but Christ is the way that our hearts begin to change. Because it's not our tendency. Our tendency is to, to cuss out our neighbor. Our tendency is, is to, to lie or cheat with people. But Christ changes our heart when he's the Lord of our lives. We begin to act more like he would want us to act. Finally, Isaiah moves on. He begins to relate just what kind of king Jesus would be. Let's read verse 7 again. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In this Isaiah saying that God has a plan for his people of Israel. When we begin to look at the people of Israel, Israel we've talked about this a little bit when I, when I preach about Gideon or some of the Old Testament uh, examples, but, but Israel didn't have a great track record. They were kind of up and down in, in their relationship with God. Um, you know, even, even though David was a fairly good king, even he had flaws, but, but outside of some of the good kings, their tendency was either to appoint a king that was pretty lousy or didn't last very long. It was either just not very good at what he did or maybe just wasn't around very long. So their track record was just kind of up and down. And for them, because of this, their future was uncertain. In fact, this book of Isaiah, these, these prophets a lot of time spoke about a time when the Israelites were going to be exiled by other countries, by, by, by other nations of the day were going to come in and half, wipe out half their people and then take them away from the promised land. And so, so the, the future for the Israelites was pretty uncertain. And, and in this comparison from Isaiah, comparison, comparing Christ to, to a righteous king, Isaiah is saying that God, God tells us, I have a plan for you, Israel. 
Even though your, your king is uncertain, your future is uncertain, I have a plan for you. I'm going to work it out in the best way you could imagine. I plan to give you the best king you could ask for, and that's in Jesus. I'm giving you a, a king who is just, righteous, full of peace, and eternal. So with their up and down track record, Isaiah is coming through and saying, I'm going to give you a king that is all you've ever wanted in a king. What's crazy, we kind of know the end of the story. The disciples were still looking for kind of a David-type king, but, but, but Jesus was kind of the king of a kingdom in reverse, kind of opposite of everything they were looking for, but Jesus was exactly the king that they wanted. So in this, kind of the last thing I want us to take away from this passage this morning is that there is hope in God's plan. There's hope in God's plan. You see, the, the nation of Israel, as Isaiah was telling them this and promising this coming king, he's saying, God has a plan for you. No longer did they have to guess, like, okay, man, who's going to be our ruler? Who's going to be our king? What's going to happen? What are we going to do? But they, but they were seeing that Jesus was the plan that they had longed and hoped for. See, one of the things we do when we celebrate um, Advent is, is we kind of reflect on this nation of Israel. Now, they were God's chosen people, and we see throughout the Old Testament that God is working out a lot of things through their history. But by the time that Jesus is there, in a sense, their hearts were groaning for a real, powerful, everlasting, peaceful, righteous king. Sometimes we think like our wait for Christmas and, and Advent takes us back and we're supposed to be waiting and anticipating and, and we sing about the anticipation. Even in a sense, we're anticipating hope today. But their, their anticipation was for thousands of years. They were hoping, looking, waiting for the, the right kind of king so that their track record wasn't up and down. And Isaiah is here saying, God has a plan. He's bringing this king and this king is going to be this, this baby Jesus. So when we look at Israel, the, the, the plan, here's what's cool about Scripture. The plan that God instated for Israel is not only Israel's plan, but it's our plan. It's the plan for all mankind. One of the, one of the hardest things for us to deal with is the future. Anybody ever try to look into the future? <laughs> you, you might try. I don't know, I've, I've never tried like a, those mediums or anything. I probably won't ever try it, but, but I don't know that. They apparently think they can look into the future. But I don't think any of us really know what's in the future. I think that's one of the hardest things for us to swallow. What is the plan? What's going to happen? You know, big and small things that, that, that we don't see the future for. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't, man, it's scary. We don't know the day that we're going to die could be this afternoon. It could be 50 years from now. But we also don't know for eternity <coughs> what's going to happen. <coughs> we can't look into to life after death and, and know what's going on. None of us know what the future holds. And I think one of the biggest reasons that we hold on to hope so much this time of year, one of the reasons that, that we seek this idea of hope it's because we don't know the future. We want hope so badly. And here's, here's the point of all of this. The point of Isaiah's 
prophecy here, the point of the season, is that the hope that we want so badly is found in Christ. That's why Christmas is such a big deal. That hope that we're seeking is found in no one else but Christ. One of my favorite verses that, that reminds us of this hope, this certainty, is 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we have hope this time of year. As we slow down and begin to think about coming into this Christmas week and into the, the, the Christmas holiday, we can have hope because our hope is in Christ. Everything else is fleeting. Our house, our money, our cars, everything else is fleeting. He takes those things and makes them good while we have them, but we don't take them with us. But we have hope in our eternity in Jesus Christ. This is the count of, of who Jesus is. When, we, when we're looking at hope, when we're, we're looking at Isaiah, we see that this, this hope is what Jesus embodies. Not only for now, not only for today, because not only does this hope begin to permeate our lives and, and everyday struggles, but it's also for the future. This hope is now for, and for eternity. So as I conclude this morning, I want to encourage you to begin to reflect. So as I ask everybody to close their eyes and bow their heads, as everybody clo closes their eyes and, and bows their heads, I want to encourage you to reflect on this idea of hope this morning. And all the busyness and all the things with Christmas, shopping and cookies and crazy Costco, I want us to slow down a little bit this morning and reflect on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So this morning we slow down to reflect, preparing our hearts for Jesus coming next weekend. So this week, as, as, as you think about this passage, as you think about Isaiah, as you think about Christmas, I want you to think about hope. And as we celebrate, as, as, we, as we do all the things that are good and fun and encouraging, I want you to think about Jesus. That he brings us, brings us hope. And the fact that he's a man, the fact that he's with us, the fact that he's all we've ever wanted and the fact that he knows our future. 